0: So today we're continuing our our way through the book of Galatians. Uh, We've been moving section by section through this book since we we launched regular services on Easter. And so we're in the very end of chapter 3, so the the last few verses here. And so just to catch you up to speed of of what's been happening right before this, because now, especially since we had a different passage uh, last week with Kevin preaching. It's been two weeks. I'm sure you've, you know, maybe forgotten where we are. Um, So chapter 3 is in this section of Galatians where he's really talking about what is the central message of Christianity. It's chapters 3 and 4. And that that Christianity is about the fact that we're saved not through good deeds, not through ceremonies, but through trusting in Christ alone. As we do that, our sin is counted to him, his righteousness is counted to us, and, and we don't contribute anything to our, our salvation. So at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul has begun to, to be contrasting two things, the, the promise of God and the law of God, that the promise is where, where God comes and says, I will do this, that I, I will save you, I will provide a way of salvation. And the law says you must do this. And, and what Paul has been saying is that God, Ultimately, our, our faith is grounded in the promises of God, not in the, the law, that, that w- the good deeds that we do flow out of knowing what God actually has done for us on the cross. But towards the middle of, ch- of chapter 3, in verse 19 specifically, he uh, began to say, well, why did God even give the law? If, it, if, it, if we don't get to heaven through the good deeds that we do, through ceremonies, why than the law. And so we saw that, that God gave the law basically to, to point us to our need for Christ, that it, it exposes our sin, that it shows what's deep down in our hearts, and that we actually can't save ourselves, that we do fall short of God's standard. And so as it drives us to Christ, we see that, that our only hope is is in the promise of God. And Paul used this, this image of what he calls a guardian in our in our passage of, and in the ancient world, somebody would have this kind of assistant that would guide them to school. So a young child would have, it was called a pedagogos. And the pedagogos would, would, it wasn't exactly a teacher, but it was a strict disciplinarian who would get them to school, make sure that they paid attention. But when they became, when they came of age, they would be freed from the oversight of this guardian who kind of would, this disciplinarian in their life. And And so Paul in verse 25 is saying, that we are no longer under this guide, under this, this guardian, but we have been set free in Christ. So again, chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 25. And this is in your pew Bible as well. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you, on page 974. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that the the words of, of my mouth, that the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the, the really the, the central theme, the central thrust of these these verses has to do with the idea of identity. Uh, where actually is our identity rooted and grounded. And this is something that I think that people struggle with from the time that they're they're young, potentially. So when you're in high school or middle school, people are, are wrestling, what, what's my identity? Is it rooted in my intelligence or in my looks? Or is it rooted in ath- being athletic or in uh, my ability to make other people laugh? But then in some ways, the identity crisis never quite ends because then it continues into adulthood where we start wrestling with other things where somebody graduates from college or enters the workforce and then just faces the cold reality of the world, you know, and who am I, what am I doing? Uh, people hit middle age and they maybe have a good job, they're a uh, family, but then they, they wonder why am I here, why am I even doing what I'm doing, and, you know, that's called the midlife crisis. Or people hit retirement and then start to wonder, you know, well, I guess I'm not working anymore, like, why? what am I doing, why... What am I contributing to the world now that I'm, I'm not working you know, eight hours a day, um, six days a week, or five days a week? And so these are all different forms of, of identity crisis, of, of saying, who am I? What, what, where is my identity rooted? And really what we see here in this passage are three realities that root a Christian's identity, that three places where we find out who we are. And then also we see three realities that no longer define our identity. And so really we'll look at it just in those two sections. So three realities that define our identity in Christ. And then we'll turn to three realities that no longer define our identity. So here's the, the first reality that in Christ defines who we are, defines our identity. And it's that we are children of God through Christ. And so we see this in, in verse 26, if you, if you look in your Bible. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And another translation, the NASB says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through f- your faith in Christ. And so really what Paul's saying is that our identity, it was once rooted in being enemies of God, of being hostile to God. But now all everyone who has put their faith in Christ is counted as a, as a son, as an, an heir of the, the king of the, of the universe. And this is, this is really good, good news for us, that I think sometimes we're afraid of identity theft, especially in the age of the internet. We're worried that somebody's going to take our, our social security number or something like that and take out huge loans or open bank accounts in our name. But really what what scripture teaches is that Jesus stole our identity on the cross. That he, in a sense, is an identity thief. But he's not somebody who goes and racks up debt and then we have to pay back. But he's somebody who who steals our identity and then pays all of our debts in full and gives us everything. That that he is the one who, who takes our sin upon him on the cross, pays the penalty for that and gives us his perfect record, his perfect righteousness. And so, I mean, this is kind of like somebody who had was an orphan, had no hope at all of any sort of economic advancement, and then suddenly finds out that they've been adopted by Bill Gates, and they're heir to the whole Bill and Melinda Gates uh, fortune, right? That they go from not having any ability to, to advance to suddenly, oh, wait, you're a billionaire. <laughs> you You have more than you could ever count or... Or imagine it would be this really I mean, striking shift in identity of, wait, my identity was this, but now my identity is something else. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us, that our identity isn't rooted just in a rich human being who adopts us, but it's saying that, that everyone who's put their faith in Christ is adopted as sons and, and daughters of, of God, this is the God who, who created the universe, who upholds everything by the, the word of his power, the, the very God who, who loves us but is at the same time holy and, and, and righteous. And so you might think of a, of a child who is afraid, has the nightmare, goes into the parent's room, and the parent is able to, to comfort because there's you know, the love of, of a parent for the child. And so even for us as we're facing the, the nightmares of, of life that sometimes we, we definitely face and the, the hardship and the, the fear that we know that we have this God who's this loving heavenly father who has adopted us and we can go to him and know that he cares for us more than any human father ever could, even the best human father. And so that is an incredible thing to embrace of our identity, who we are in Christ. So that's the, the first identity marker. But here, here's the second and third. So we'll look. Remember, I said there were three. That's the first, and we'll look at the second and the third together because Paul puts them together in our text. And it's that first we or I guess it's second we are baptized in Christ, and then third we are clothed with Christ. So we had said we're adopted in Christ, we're baptized in Christ, and we're clothed with Christ. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and so you'll see Paul he's talking here about baptism, and people say, well what does baptism mean? Baptism means baptism, <laughs> I think. Um, and that Paul's talking about the, the initiation right into, the, into Christianity, uh, that when, when somebody becomes a Christian, they are baptized. Um, And the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that that baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit does signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. And so really what that old definition from the 1600s is getting at is that baptism, like all sacraments, like the Lord's Supper, has really two parts that there 's the, this external sign, and then there 's this internal reality behind it the thing being signified and so w- with baptism, you know the external reality is is water you 're washing with water in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but then the inner reality that what 's being signified is being brought into the covenant community, but then also being clothed in Christ, putting on Jesus. And so if you look at what Paul is then saying here, he's saying that those who have been baptized into Christ, those who have had the external sign, have also taken the the internal reality of being clothed in Jesus. But that, I mean, I, I even struggled with this this week. That feels strange at first, right, that, that he says, as many of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But you, but we all know that there are people who, say, are baptized as children, but then never really come to faith in Christ. Or people who uh, can't were baptized, but it turns out that they never actually believed. And so they, they didn't put on Christ. And so is it really true what he's saying, that those who have been baptized in Christ have, have put on Christ? Is there's this sort of one-to-one correlation And really, if you look at the verse before, in verse 26, that's really the key for understanding what Paul is saying here. You'll notice that he was speaking to people. He says that all of you who have been baptized into Christ, sorry, all of you who, sorry, oh yeah, all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ. So he's saying, speaking to people who are, Believers. He's saying that, that to, to you who have put your trust in Jesus and who are sons and, and daughters of the king, to you, you also have the, the inner reality of, of putting on Jesus Christ and that that reality has been signified and it's sealed in baptism. So I know that's confusing, um, but basically what, he, what he's saying is he's not saying every single person who's baptized has also put on Christ. But he's saying that everybody who has been baptized into Christ and adopted into God's family through faith has also put on Christ. You see, you see the, the difference of, of what he's saying here. So then why, why does he even mention baptism at all? Because we know that, that baptism is not ultimately what saves us. Well, well baptism... It has a lot to do with our identity, that, that who, who are we? How do we think of ourselves? You know, you know, you, Sometimes you'll have a piece of paper that has a, a watermark on it where there might be some words or symbols on a piece of paper that show maybe it's copyrighted. Um, or even in the digital world, say you go on to Google Images and you're trying to find a pi- picture to put on your website or on some presentation, and you say, oh, this picture is great, and then you see all these little images or symbols back behind you and those are the watermarks which are saying this doesn't belong to you this is under copyright and so if you're going to to use this you need to get some kind of special permission and really that that's what baptism is it's this literally this watermark that's on us that says you don't belong to the to the world you don't belong to who you were but you belong to to God. You belong to the, to this new family. That, that's the church. That's the, the covenant community. Now, I know that, that some of you here uh, may have been baptized, so you have the, the external symbol, but, but maybe you actually don't have the, the inner reality, that you've never repented and trusted in Christ. And if that's you... You know, if you're just some somebody who maybe was baptized as a child or somebody who walked down an aisle in ninth grade but it, it never really actually embraced Christ and faith, um, then you must know, though, that baptism, it actually can't save you, that it it's a symbol of being saved, but it can't in and of itself save you, That that you must admit that you can't save yourself and trust in Christ. But it doesn't mean then that that your baptism is, you know, completely irrelevant or that God somehow is not working in that that you have something that actually points to a deeper reality. And probably, you know, some of you know that, you know, hope and other presbyterian churches, which is different than some other Christians who, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ look at this differently from scripture, but what we would say is, okay, we we when we baptize, we baptize a believer, but also members of their household um, who are also brought into the church. So for instance, my daughter, Helen, was baptized in December, but she's somebody who has, that didn't guarantee that she's saved. She has not yet put on Jesus Christ. She has not yet exercised uh, faith. So some people would say, well, she shouldn't have been baptized. But the idea of that is that what we're, we're longing and what we're saying is that, that she has this watermark of God upon her saying that you know she belongs to the visible church, this visible community that she and we are longing and praying that she will come to faith in Christ that she will come to, to know the Lord to trust in, in him, and that she will essentially live into this reality of her baptism I and mean, what is symbolized there and, that, and that's true for each and every one of us, you know regardless of even what our, our view of baptism or anything like that, that we, if we have been baptized, to, to live into that reality, to know that, that this says something about our identity, who we belong to, and especially those who have been baptized and have put on Christ through faith, to know that, that our identity is no longer defined by other things. It's not defined by our anxiety. It's not defined by our fears. Our identity isn't defined by just what our parents said about us, or what, how well we did in school, or how many people we supervise, or how much money we make. All these things that we want to really put at the center of our identity. But what this is saying is that in Christ, our identity is that we are adopted into the, the family of God, that we are children of God, that, that we have been baptized into Christ, that we have then put on Christ through faith. And that just changes everything about our lives, about the way we think about ourselves, and ultimately the way we think about others. So those are the, the three realities that, that define us, that we are adopted, baptized, and clothed in Christ, and that Jesus is at the center of everything. And it's just, I love how much Paul just keeps coming back to Christ, mentioning his name over and over again, that if we're going to think about ourselves as believers, it's going, only going to be in and through Jesus, nothing else. But then next in, in verse twenty eight you see then where Paul moves to three realities that no longer define our identity look at verse twenty eight there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and so what Paul's saying here is that these markers, these very strong markers of identity that we use so often to define us, they don't define us uh, any longer in Christ. And, it, and it's, it's our race, it's our rank, and it's our, our sex. So, look, we'll, we'll go through those one by one. So, we're no longer defined by our race. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. And so he's saying that, that for somebody who's been baptized into the church, who's, who's taken on Christ, that if, if they're a Jew, their identity isn't defined by being Jewish. If they're a Greek, their identity isn't defined by being Greek. And this would have been kind of a shocking thing for some of the people in his context to hear, uh, because both Jews and Greeks took a lot of pride in their culture and um, in their ethnicity, I mean, Greeks saying that you know, we are the ones who had all the great philosophers, all the great intellectual thought. The, the Jews saying we're the ones who received the, the law of God on, on Mount Sinai. So in some way, we are we're a special people. And really, in, in modern terms, I think if, if Paul were today, he could have said it like this. Instead of there is neither Jew nor Greek, he could have said there um, is neither white nor black. Or you could have said, there's neither Hutu nor Tutsi. There's neither Jew nor German. There's neither an Irish person or an English person. You could go down the list of all of just these ethnic, racial tensions that just characterize our world. And and what Paul is saying is that those sorts of of battles of race and and culture is is opposed to the very essence of the gospel, that it's not the way that, that Christians ought to operate, and he gives the reason for that at the end of the verse, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, that we're one in Christ. And this doesn't mean that that he denied all differences between cultures. He knows that God says at the end of the age that every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship. He always talked about himself as a Jew. And in one sense I think he was proud of being Jewish, um, that he saw that the beauty of his culture. But when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, he said that there's neither Jew nor Greek, that, that this external marker of identity is not what defines me, that what defines Paul, what defines us, is not our race, the color of our skin, or our culture, but it's Christ, that we are one in Christ. And so any grounds of being able to discriminate against others for those things just, just falls away in Christ. But then second... We see here also that we're not defined by our rank. Uh, Paul says there is neither slave nor free. And in the ancient world, like a lot of places, uh, there was slavery. It was different than slavery in the American South. It wasn't a a racial-based slavery for the most part. But it was a huge part of Greco-Roman society where it it was divided between people who were free and people who were slaves, and between the haves and the, the have-nots. And so when Paul's saying that, there, that there's um, neither slave nor free, he is saying, again, in modern terms, that there's no employer and employee. There, there's no king and subject. There's no bourgeoisie and proletariat. There, there's no rich and poor. There's no educated, uneducated, that these aren't the things that... Define us, and again, he gives the reason, for we are all one in Christ. That Paul also didn't deny the differences of rank. If you look at other places in his writing, uh, he he wasn't trying to lead some sort of a communist revolution. uh, That in Colossians 3.22, he says, speaking to servants, he says, "...bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters." Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So what he's saying, you know, if you're an employee of some kind, if you're under somebody's authority, you can't just say, well, there's, there, there's all distinctions that have broken down. I'm not going to listen to my, to my boss anymore. I'm not going to uh, follow any kind of authority. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying ultimately, though, is that our, our social rank, our socioeconomic class, doesn't ultimately define who we are in Christ. That our identity isn't rooted in how much money we have. It isn't rooted in how many people we supervise, but it's rooted in Christ alone. It all comes back to Christ. But then third and and finally here, we are no longer defined by our sex, by male and female. Paul says there is no male and female. And this doesn't also mean that Paul denied any differences between men and women. Sometimes that this verse can be um, abused to, to, to say all kinds of things. Uh, because if you look at other places in Paul's writings, you know, he, he definitely teaches that you know, men and women are equal and, and dignity created in the image of God. But there are differences between men and women, different roles in family and in, in church. Uh, he affirms very clearly, something that is often controversial today, that... God's intention in, uh, for marriage from the beginning of creation in Genesis 1 um, is ma- marriage between a, a man and a woman. And so Paul is not breaking down all differences here. But what he's saying is that ultimately our identity as believers isn't rooted in being a man or a woman, first and foremost. That we are all co-heirs of salvation and he said, "That's why he says that we are all one in Christ." And again, this would have been so countercultural at his time to to say there is neither male nor female. It, it would have just sounded so strange for people to, to, especially in this context of the Greek society where women really were marginalized, where women really were treated as second-class um, citizens. You know, for example, listen to what Plato, the the philosopher, said. He said, I thank God that I was born Greek and not a barbarian. So there you have the race. He says that he, he was born free and not a slave, rank, and male, not female, sex. And above all, that I was born in the age of Socrates. So, so there, there's Plato just saying, well, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm not a woman uh, or that I'm not a slave, or that I'm not one of those barbarians and, and non-Greek. He's, he's rooting his identity in these external markers. Or on the, on the Jewish side, this is a prayer that was used often in synagogues in the first century. It says, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. So there you have race. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave, and you have rank. And blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who has made not made me a woman. Um, and so again, there you have you have sex. So he's saying, like, thank you, Lord, you know, that I'm not a foreigner, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. Um, and and so this is the kind of context where, where Paul was operating, the kinds of things that people were being taught. And then he's saying, all, that, that were not defined by these things, the very opposite of the prevailing wisdom of his culture, both Greek and Jewish. And, of course, it's not just ancient society that just tries to define everyone in terms of these things, uh, that, that we see it today, but we, we just call it identity politics. Um, I looked up the definition of identity politics, and it's, it's this, that politics in which a group of people having a particular racial Religious, ethnic or social or cultural identity tend to promote their own specific interests or concerns without regard to the interests or concerns of any larger political group. And, and that, that is the way that we operate in America, the way people have operated throughout history, where we're more concerned about our own group, people that are, are like us in, in some way that if you're a man, you're concerned about the interests of men. Or, or women and women, or slaves of slaves, free of free, of whatever culture you you grew up in. That's so often how we operate. But yet Paul's saying that that is not how the church is to function, that we are all one in Christ. That our identity is is rooted in the fact that we are sons and daughters of God, that we have been baptized into the the community of God, that we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The only basis upon which we want to separate ourselves from others, just completely falls apart. So just as we, as we close then, I uh, just want to challenge each of you just to, to think about where is your identity actually rooted? And I think that, that sometimes, especially as believers, we might say, oh, yeah, my identity is rooted in Christ. But sometimes when the rubber really hits the pavement in our lives, that that's not actually how we think of ourselves Sometimes we think of ourselves maybe as an American first and a Christian second, or we think of ourselves as an a educated person first and a, a Christian second, or we think of ourselves as whatever our vocation is first and, and a Christian second. And what, what Paul's saying is that, that that's going to cause major problems when, when we shift the identity. It's not that those things aren't true about us, but that's not ultimately where our identity is rooted. I mean, so if you take me, I mean, if, on the, if I fill out the census, they're going to say, okay, he's, he's white, he's a male, he's an American, he's a pastor, he's a father. And these are probably the things that people would say, oh, who is Will Stern? Oh, these are, this is who he is. This is his identity. But if you only looked at that, they would actually be missing the most important part of who I am. Because the most important part of who I am, of who you are in Christ, is who your father is, that, that God is your father, of what community you belong to, that you've been baptized into the church. And ultimately, what are you wearing, (laughs) right? Not what are you wearing in your clothes, but are you wearing your own righteousness, your own goodness, the own things that you have done? Or are you wearing Jesus Christ and looking to him for everything that you are? And then just as we, we wrap up also, look then at that final verse, verse 29, Paul says, and if you are Christ's, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so Paul is just bringing full circle all the things we've been talking about for weeks, that we say, who is our, what is our identity? Well, our identity is also rooted in the fact that we are heirs of this promise that goes back 4,000 years to Abraham, and that he promised that the nations would be blessed. And here we are, The nations brought into the the church in different culture, different language than they originally had when the the gospel came. And that we are counted offspring with Jesus. Back in verse 16, it said that Jesus is the true offspring, the, the one to whom all the promises were made, the one who has fulfilled everything. And he is ultimately where our identity is rooted. So if you are facing some sort of identity crisis today, wondering who you are, wondering uh, why you're here, well, this is is the answer. And this is where you can actually find that that life and that hope that we all need. And yet another picture of our identity is found here in the Lord's Supper. And we we said that that baptism shows who we are. It's this initiation right into the, the church. But this also Shows what Christ has done, but and, and who we are before Him, our identity. That that Christ's body was broken and His blood was shed for us. That He took our identity on the cross and paid the penalty for everything that we deserve, and then rose again from the dead and and offers us life, and says that that no, your body's not going to be broken because of the things that you've done, but my body was broken. No, your blood is not going to be be shed in the judgment of God, because my blood was was shed, that I, I took the wrath of God in your place.